Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Would you pray with me this morning? Our God, we can humbly and truly say that there is no one like you. There's no thrill for our soul. There's no satisfaction like our soul other than Jesus. So God, in this moment, would you remind us of your greatness? In this moment, would you take our hearts that are so busy, still us, comfort us, overwhelm us with how great you are. Father, thank you that in this moment, as we continue to worship it, now comes that special time, that mysterious time, that glorious time, where we get to hear a message from Your Word. And in some way, Lord God, when Your Word is read, we get to hear Your voice. And may it be clear. Make Your path known to us. Help us to see Jesus. In whose name we humbly pray. And all of God's people said, hope you're here today to hear from God. I hope you have your Bible with you. That's one of the ways that we know whether your Bible has leather bound or it has a battery, whatever the case may be. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning over there, I've really always wondered what it would be like to be on top of the world. Now, I'm not like you're thinking. I've always wondered what it would be like to climb Mount Everest. Mount Everest is so high that to climb it, most people have to have oxygen. Since 1924, 282 people have died while climbing. I found out that 70 of those 242 died while they were on the way down after they'd made it all the way to the top. Now that's a sermon illustration in and of itself, but we'll have to keep going. But of those 282 that died, listen carefully, 109 of those did not have supplemental oxygen. Now let me paint a picture for you. Everest is 29,000 feet high. What does that mean? Well, it means that it's the top of the world, but it also means that humans, we pass out at an altitude of 15,000 feet. Now, climbers, those who have acclimated their bodies and those who climb slow, they can last a little longer than just you and I could, but no one can survive long above 26,000 feet. Now, how tall is Mount Everest? 29,000. And no one can survive long without oxygen at 26,000 feet. And it takes 39 days to climb Everest. The reason it takes so long is because you have to take it slow. Your body has to acclimate to the altitude. And each breath on the summit of Everest has 66% less oxygen than what's at sea level. So every breath you take, you need almost two breaths to get one breath if you're on the summit. Now what does all that have to do with anything 
that we've been looking at. Did you realize that today we finish chapter 5 of Matthew? And what does this mean? Let, let me paint a picture for you. Those of you who have hung in here for most of the time, I'm grateful that you have. What does that mean? And we had the privilege in 2017. We're not going to have this privilege in a few years. But in 2017, we got to meet together as a church on January the 1st. On the first day of the year, we got the privilege of meeting together and worshiping together. And on January the 1st of 2017, that's when we began looking at chapter 5. Now, what's the date today? The date is July something, right? What does that mean? We have been 25 sermons into chapter 5. And we finally reach the top of Matthew 5. But look at this. Let's be honest. The climbing is not over yet. We're still ascending the Sermon on the Mount. Matter of fact, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is this wonderful passage. It goes from Matthew 5 on into chapter 6 on into chapter 7. You know what I'm thinking? We're never going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I say that uh, hyperbolically, but I also mean it in, in one way because really we're never going to get over the Sermon on the Mount. Look at how beautiful this passage is. Notice, you can almost hear the, the, the concern and the care that our Savior has for us as He's writing what He's writing in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. So what I want to do today as we open up to Matthew chapter 5, and this is something a little different. I don't necessarily have a Hey, we're going to look at this section. What I want to do is I just want us to just take just a moment. Stop and take a breath. Stop and look around. and See the beauty that's around us. I want us to look today at the whole of chapter 5 so that we'll have a firm understanding of all the beauty that surrounds us. Here's the reason I want to do that. Because I want to answer some questions that come from chapter 5. Because the danger, if we're not careful in a detailed study like this, and, and I knew this coming in, and this is one of the reasons why I want to encourage the congregation that God has entrusted to me for this. The danger of, of a detailed study like this is if we're not careful, we can lose the context of what Jesus is saying. Get so mucked up and lose our treading, we can lose the context of what Jesus is saying and what He has been telling us, the significance of what He has been telling us since chapter 5. Now look at some of these truths that we've explored. They're beautiful. Some of them you may want to put on your wall. Some of the truths in Matthew 5 you may want to commit to memory. You may want to write them down somewhere. Put them on a t-shirt, whatever the case may be. Like the Beatitudes, for example. Who doesn't love the Beatitudes? Those blessed statements that reveal to us what God's plan is all along as He reveals to us what it means to be His, what it means to be genuinely human. Those blessed statements that show to us what the path of life is. Or what about this statement in verse 13 where He says that you're the salt of the earth and then verse 14 where He says you're the light of the world. Do you see those beauties? What about in... This wonderful statement in verse 17 and following of chapter 5 where he says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And then we see next where after Jesus says that He's come to fulfill the law, 
He says, all of these, you've heard that it was said, but I say. You've heard that it was said, don't be angry. You've heard that it was said, don't lust. You've heard that it was said, don't commit murder. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, don't divorce. You've heard that it was said, all of these things. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. But the question that I want us to think about as we look at this passage of Scripture, because I'm not ready to leave yet. I think that as we continue on this trek, as we're climbing this wonderful sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, we need to stop at one of the vista points. Just see the horizon. See what it is that God is telling us. We've seen the Beatitudes. We've seen Christ as the fulfillment of the law. We've seen how He illustrates. But why is Jesus telling us what He's been telling us? And if I were to summarize the message of the Sermon on the Mount, it would be something like this. Jesus has come to remake and reorder the world according to Himself. And so the Beatitudes, how does that fit in to His message? The Beatitudes are the pictures of this new humanity. And everything that follows are little sketches of how this new humanity that Christ is forming plays itself out into the real world. So these are all little scenarios of, of what these blessed statements mean. All the blessed statements are this new humanity that Christ has come in. It's interesting. Christ has come in the light of the world. It's interesting that God spoke the world into being. And the first thing that He said was, let there be light. Right? That's what He said. Let there be light. And there was light. And now the light that we see as the Father sent the Son into the world to be the light of the world, He came in a world that is full of darkness, to be that light in the world. Matter of fact, John says, if you remember, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So, he's sharing with us, he's telling us about himself as well as his mission, all that he's accomplishing, all that he desires, this new world that he's making. And what does it mean? Here's what it means. Listen carefully. Jesus has not come to give us a new religion. He's not come to give us some new ethical system. All those things are important. Do we have a religion when we follow Jesus? Sure, it's called Christianity. Do we have a new ethic that we live by? Sure, it's the ethics of the cross. But all of those things are secondary, not primary. You say, well, what is primary? Listen carefully. This is how encompassing the message of Christianity is. It can't be separated into just ethics. It can't be separated into just morality. It can't be separated into... Just religion. Here's what Jesus is doing. Christ has come to make all things new. He has come to form new creation right in the midst of the old one. That's amazing. He has come to form new creation right in the midst of the old one. Light. Shining into the darkness until, as the prophets say, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So the Sermon on the Mount is really a commentary on the life of Jesus. It's really a commentary on not just the life of Jesus, but also the life that you and I who trust Jesus, the life that we have in Him. And if we've learned anything about the Sermon on the Mount, if we've learned anything, if we're paying attention in any way, then we should learn of how impossible this life is apart from 
from Jesus. I believe the Sermon on the Mount is meant to develop within us a certain type of attitude. After we look at its heights, after we begin to ascend its glory, it's meant to develop in us a certain type of attitude. You know what that attitude is? It's an attitude of dependence. It's an attitude that's contra self-sufficiency, and it's an attitude that suggests I can do nothing to accomplish salvation. It's an attitude that says that if there's going to be any salvation, it's got to come from above, not from within. I think it's an attitude like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. Listen to what it says. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now listen to this next part. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Who wrote that? Paul. Paul was a man who understood the gospel, I'd say, better than most. Now, what do we mean when we say that Paul understood the gospel better than most? We don't mean understanding doesn't mean answering the age-old questions or the mysteries of God. You know, I think that Paul could do that. Read Romans 9, read Romans 10, Romans 11. Read about that occasion where Paul went up to the third heaven. And, you know, we're sitting there wondering what on earth is Paul talking about as he mentions these things. I don't think that understanding means answering the age-old question, these mysteries of God. Listen, here's what we mean when I say that Paul understood the Gospel better than some. Here's what I mean. It means that he kept coming to the point in his life where he realized that there was no self-sufficiency that he could lean on to merit a good standing with God. His good standing with God was only through the Lord Jesus Christ. His understanding of this life was Jesus, only Jesus. Now Steve and the praise team and the choir did well this morning by leading us to consider Jesus. Leading us to consider the majesty of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. You see, here's how we know we understand the Gospel. When we look and we say that any self-sufficiency, we cast it aside and we say, just give me Jesus. He is the reason for my hope. He is my satisfaction. He is my joy. He is my all. He is my everything. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Some of you may have never heard of someone named Augustus Toplady. But Toplady was a minister of the Gospel in the 18th century in England. And one day, Top Lady was walking home when he found himself in a fierce storm. Top Lady looked around wondering what he was going to do, and he took shelter, the only shelter that he could, and he ran into a gorge where he hid himself under a cleft in the rocks until the storm passed. And the legend says that it was in that cleft that he drew inspiration for a song. It goes something like this. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood 
from thy wounded side which flowed. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I too thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown, behold thee on thy throne. Sing it with me. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. A rock of ages that clefts for us. A safe refuge that we run to. Because the Sermon on the Mount shows us that the new kingdom is breaking in right in the middle of the old one. Jesus has come and in His coming He's saying, I am making all things New. The Sermon on the Mount is here to show us that if we have any hope, our hope must come from another source other than ourselves. Listen to me. Hope doesn't come from within. Hope comes from above. The Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be climbed. We are meant to be lifted to its heights by the One who Himself is the height of Heaven, our God, our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And He has come when we were in the depths of our depravity. He has come when we could not get to where He was. He has come to us and rescued us by sending Himself to us so that He could take us from the pits and raise us to the heights of His perfection. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And for anyone who thinks salvation can be earned by their own merits, if there's anyone in here who thinks that you can earn your own salvation by what you do, just look at the Beatitudes. How many of you want to have the kingdom of heaven? How many of you want to be comforted? How many of you want to inherit the earth or be satisfied or receive mercy or see God or be called a son of God? How many of you are willing to be poor in spirit? Mournful, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart. People live by the letter and not by the Spirit of the law. They say things, and you've heard this all along, they say things like, well, I've, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never retaliated wrongfully. I've, I've never gone through divorce. I try to let my yes say. I try to be a good person. But what does Jesus say? Here's what Jesus says. He said, if you've been angry, you're guilty of murder. Jesus says, if you've looked with lust, you're guilty of adultery. The issue is the heart. Not what you do, but who you are. 
And Jesus comes as the light of the world to say, without His light, you are simply stumbling in the dark. Any good that you can do is nowhere near what's good enough. Look at what it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.48. You must be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The comfort that you think you're living with is no comfort at all. But here's the truth. Here's the good part. When Jesus comes in, when Jesus shows us the way, all of those who are in Christ, we're the ones who can see. All of us who are in Christ, we're the ones who knows what living is all about. All of us who are in Christ, we know what it means to have life. Why? One reason. Jesus. Jesus. Now you do something with your Bible that you said that you had here today. Look at the Sermon on the Mount before you. Just look at it. Read over some of its contents in your head. Look at it. There may not be a clearer picture in Scripture that shows us our need for Jesus. Look at the twin peaks at the end of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right, turn to him the other also. Look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. Who is capable for such things? Look how far we've fallen. And I want you to know that the friction that you feel right there, when you read what Jesus is saying and you see how far we are from what Jesus is saying, you know what that is? That shows us the depth of our fall. That shows us how Far we are from God. And see, remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to people who they live by the letter. But Jesus would say of them, maybe the same thing that He says of us. We honor Him with our lips, but our hearts, oh, they are far from Him. You know what this sermon does? As one commentator said, it shows us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We know what Jesus thinks about sin. He's, he's already told us when He talks about lust. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, in verse 29, tear it out and throw it away. This is serious. Then He says, it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. You know what this tells us? This tells us, the depths of our depravity, the radical condition of our fall. We are hopeless and helpless. We need someone. We are lying dead on the table. We need someone to come and give us life, to breathe life and make our dead hearts start rising, start living again. Jesus says, I'm here for that. I am the solution. No, 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 not the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount's not the solution. It shows us Jesus. And Jesus says, the Sermon on the Mount is about me. I am this life. I am this way. I am this truth. And I believe that we need to get this right, right away, or we will miss everything. A radical need for Jesus. That we cannot save ourselves. There is no self-sufficiency. So much confusion abounds 
about salvation. And I believe the reason that it abounds about salvation is because I believe we miss it in the very beginning. We take these truths for granted instead of letting these truths be the place that we live our lives. This is not just a window that we get to look through. This is the very foundation of the house. This is the very foundation stone that we build our whole lives upon. But don't take these truths for granted like water just going over a rock. Don't let moss grow over you. Let these truths sink into you and begin to change you. And in the Bible Belt, right where we are, and I've talked to people and you've talked to people and in the Bible Belt, people have such strange ideas of what it means to be Christian. In 2005, there was a new term that was coined. And I like this term. A couple of sociologists wrote a book. And they, in that book, they coined this term. Moral Therapeutic Deism. Moral Therapeutic Deism. It's not Christianity. It's moral therapeutic deism. And it has five pillars. Let me put them on the screen for you. Here's the five pillars of moral therapeutic deism. Number one, this is what people believe. And I believe that they believe this all because they miss the greatness of the gospel. They believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. How many people you know that believe that? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. You probably know someone that believes that. You may have bought into the lie of one of those. And every one of those, though some of them may contain an ounce of truth, it's the little bit of error that forfeits the blessing of the good. And the remedy for all of this the remedy that has covered Georgia and covered Alabama and South Carolina and the, and the whole Bible Belt, Florida and Texas on down, wherever. Like a kudzu that's just covered everything. In some places we are so confused about what the Gospel is, we don't even know it anymore because we see so much good. But there's that little bit of error and that little bit of error is what makes the whole thing bad. And I think that the remedy, I won't say I think, I say that I know that the remedy for moral therapeutic deism is the cross of Jesus Christ. There's some Christians who want to capitulate and say, well, you know, the cross is not about the wrath of God, all this stuff. They're taking the cross of Christ and they're forfeiting the cross of Christ. And when you do, when you forfeit the cross of Christ, you lose Christianity. The Sermon on the Mount is here to show us we are in Desperate need for a salvation that cannot rise within ourselves. It must be given. Think about Matthew. What ends Matthew? Do you remember what happens at the end of Matthew? You sure know Jesus is crucified, right? 
this same Jesus who preached, who healed, who loved, He's going to be crucified on a cross. Why? For sin. Whose sin? My sin. Your sin. The sin of the world. He's going to be crucified on a cross. Then He's going to rise back from the dead. And interesting in Matthew, and I'm going to make this point in the very end, but in case we don't make it, I'm going to make this point in the very end. Matthew, listen carefully. You may want to write this down. This is good. Matthew leaves Jesus on the earth. There's no ascension story in Matthew. You know why? So that he can bring the message home, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He leaves the king on the earth with the subjects of his kingdom ready, marching with the banner of this cross, going into all the world and making disciples of all the nations. This same Jesus shows us the way of salvation. And the way of salvation is marked by a spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The way of salvation is through a Savior who came to us. And now that He has come to us, He bids every person repent as He bids men to come unto Him. And how does He bid us to come to Him? He does it by His cross. He does it By His nail-scarred hands. Why the cross? Why the scars? One reason. Sin. Whose sin? My sin. Your sin. The sins of the world. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we are meant to feel the weight of His glory. We are meant to see our need for His love to lift us. We are meant to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin and see that the only cure for our condition is the cross of Christ. Not self-sufficiency. Not resting on our righteousness. Jesus. Only Jesus. And I wonder if that's the way that you see things. Because Let me say this. Listen carefully to your pastor. You can come to church all your life. You can go to Sunday school. You can get as many awards as the church can give. You can be the best person since Mother Teresa. You can read your Bible every day and pray for eight hours straight. You can give all your money away to charity or the church or wherever. But if you miss the cross of Christ, if you miss your need for Jesus, if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. Everything. Salvation is marked by one way. Jesus. And I hope that's the way you see things. I hope that you see how our sin and His grace, I hope you see the radical condition of our sinfulness and the extent and the power of His grace to overcome that which separate us from Him. I hope and pray that you are overwhelmed by the Gospel. Don't get over the Gospel. And if you're here this morning and you've gotten over the Gospel, let me tell you something. You never understood it to begin with. There's a preacher that used to preach. I don't remember. He used to be somewhere close. I remember a lady at First Baptist Atlanta. She was a secretary. I used to love the way that she wrote. She had this... I think she was arthritic, but the way that she wrote was beautiful. She worked so hard to overcome her arthritis and just gorgeous writing. It was strange looking, Some of the A's were a little longer than, but it was gorgeous. I loved it anyway. 
I remember this lady telling me of her pastor. He used to say something like this, and maybe you've heard it before. It's so good that, you know, we preachers, we get a hold of something, we just go with it. So he says something like this, faith that fizzles was flawed from the first. Faith that fizzles is flawed from the first. And if you're sitting here today and you've gotten over the gospel, you never understood it to begin with. Listen to what Spurgeon said. By the way, Spurgeon can say anything better than me any day. So listen to what he says. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross. Count the purple drops by which you've been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark His scourged shoulders still gushing within crimson reels. See hands and feet giving up to the rough iron. And His whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pains and the cross of inward grief showing themselves in His outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before the cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know Him. No wonder we wonder how He could love us. And if you wonder how He could love you, you got it right. You're there. You understand the Gospel. But in the midst of our wonder, we are overwhelmed and comforted with this fact. He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. He loves you so much that He has moved heaven and earth to bring salvation to you. He loves us so much that He gave His life so that He could be our life. And there again, let me say this. This is not only the beginning of our lives. This is our life. Standing amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wondering how He could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. The only word that we can say is how marvelous. This is not a passing glance that we look and say, oh yeah, there's Jesus. This is the motivation for the rest of our life. How is it that you could understand His love so easily and get over His love so quickly? Unless that is, you've never known this love. So we stand in the shadow of the Sermon on the Mountain. We see that the Gospel doesn't just it's not just an addendum to our life. It's our life. Jesus crucified for me. Jesus risen for me. Jesus coming for me motivates everything in our life. And if it doesn't, then you're not living for Him. You're not living for Him. I've got two minutes. And in those two minutes, I want to give you three ways the Gospel motivates your life. Listen, number one, holiness. Holiness. You know what holiness means? It means set apart. 
Nothing will motivate your holiness like realizing the depths of depravity and seeing the great lengths that He's gone through to save you. Do you know what happens every time you sin? Every time you sin, every time I sin, you know what we're doing? We align ourselves with the very things that Christ came to destroy. Listen to 1 John. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Listen to what he says. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Every time we sin, we align ourselves with the very works that Christ came to destroy. Holiness. Second is evangelism. What do we mean by evangelism? I don't want you to just mean memorizing F-A-I-T-H or memorizing evangelism explosion or memorizing creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I want to see all of those things permeate. What we mean by evangelism is seeing the story of the Gospel permeating every part of your life. You go to the grocery store. You buy food that's motivated by the Gospel. You say, how does that work? That's why we get to spend so much time together to learn what it means to live for Jesus. Evangelism is this good news for whosoever to call upon the name of the Lord. It's not just this idea to go to heaven when we die, although that's important. It's so much more than that. We get to take this message and live this message before the world. And it's good news. I don't know anyone who doesn't need this news. And this news is at the same time, we are more flawed than we even dare think, but at the more love than we could ever imagine. Now, that's good news. Thirdly, the Gospel motivates our life to give us confidence. Confidence. As I was riding up through North Georgia, I saw a church one time from a particular denomination I like the name of the church. The name of the church was Confidence. And it didn't make sense because this particular denomination believes that you can lose your salvation. But they named their church Confidence. What confidence can we really have if we can be saved one moment and lost the next? But the Gospel gives the greatest confidence because it reveals that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even yourself. This is the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. Now we could sit here all day and go through, that's just three, and we could talk about so many more, but that's why we get to come every week. Preacher can't preach it all in one sermon, right? Though you're probably saying, you sure do try every time. <laughs> Each week we get to experience God here at Oxford. As we participate in the preached Word, as the Word is proclaimed, what are we doing? Listen, we're proclaiming Him. Him. Not about Him, but Him. Not some religion that we've deduced, not something to make us all feel better about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus. And if Jesus makes you feel better about yourself, great. But there's sometimes He doesn't make me feel good about myself, if you know what I mean. The conviction that He brings upon my heart, it's a mixed Emotion sometimes with our Lord. But we are proclaiming Him. And because we proclaim Him, listen, we have to respond to Him. If you can sit here and have the Word proclaimed to you clearly, and I pray that it's clear, and you leave without some type of response, either I'm not clear, or you're not getting it. 
And I spend hours in prayer that I'm clear. We have to turn from our self-sufficiency and wholly trust in Jesus. We are prone to depravity. He is holy. And here's the beautiful truth. Don't miss this. He who is holy is making us holy His. Completely His. So let me just ask you this morning, are you His? Are you trusting in Jesus? Is the motivator in your life Jesus and His salvation? Father, thank You so much for Your kindness. Thank You for loving us with great grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than we could even imagine. Father, I pray for those here today who are trying to live Christianity outside the cross. Who are trusting in their own sufficiencies, trusting in their own mode of religion instead of trusting in Jesus. Would you right now show them that there's nothing in the world that can save them other than Jesus and may they say now, I trust in Jesus. May we all say, we trust in Jesus. May we see response here today, O God, that may take the form of people walking an aisle or it may just be them coming after the service deciding that they need to take a step of faith and obedience. But whatever the case may be, may You deal with every heart here Show us that our need is great, but Jesus is greater. In His name we pray. Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.